Christ is risen, risen indeed. One of the great things about that song that we sang, it was the first time we've ever sung it here. Uh, It was written about a year and a half ago uh, by a couple by the name of Kristen and Keith Getty. If you've not heard of them, we sing many of their songs, In Christ Alone, uh, Holy Spirit, Living Breath of God. They're phenomenal songs. Uh, Today we sang, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And one of the... um, One of the parts that I love about that song, in the structure, it talks about what happened after Christ's uh, resurrection and the outworking that that had through the disciples who, after Pentecost, received boldness and went and spread the good news of of Christ's resurrection. And so it it talks about their martyrdom and it talks about... um, their their suffering and one of the one of my favorite lines in that song is when Jesus is responding to Thomas he says blessed are those who have not seen and that that song if you remember it says blessed are those who have not seen yet sing hallelujah and so uh, I just I love that song I hope you enjoyed it um, here we are to talk about Easter and experience once again the life of Christ through his word We're going to talk about uh, John 20 today, as it was in our reading, and if you've been with us for any length of time in the last few weeks, um, we've been in the book of John, and we've been covering uh, some of the metaphors and and symbols in the book of John as it relates to Christ opening our eyes, us us in a state of blindness needing Christ to come and open our eyes. And if he comes and opens our eyes, opens our eyes, then we will be filled with light and we will be living. And so in this chapter, we see a number of elements of that story repeating that we've been talking about the Jesus healing the blind man, the time that Jesus was with Nicodemus. And today, as we see Jesus rising in the tomb, I want to make a few observations concerning the structure of the book of John. First, I want to look at the devotion that the disciples had in running to the tomb after Mary came and told them. I want to look at Mary's encounter and how Mary actually uh, is a, um, a type of the church, as we read in, in Song uh, 3 this morning. And then I want to look at the, uh, the structure of Jesus' response and, and interactions with her in such a way as to see it um, applying to us. And then I want to look at the visitation that the Lord uh, makes when he comes to the disciples while they're in that locked room. And then finally, I want to see just the last two verses of this chapter, how the gospel is plain and clear, and we do not need at all to complicate it. Many times we, we say that the gospel is clear, and then when we present the gospel, we can be tempted to say, well, it's not that clear or Maybe I can explain it better, but the the gospel in the Bible is extremely clear. And I want to talk about how if you are a person who is not yet trusting fully upon Christ's victory over death for you, that according to the gospel of John, these last two verses, the structure of the Bible, the structure of the gospel of John, the contents were written so that you would believe and believing you would have life in his name. And that is the gospel that you hear of what Christ has done, you trust him and believe in him, and and that is salvation. 
Um, what you do after that is totally not necessary to cover while you're presenting the gospel, when you're revisiting the foundations of the gospel. And I want to uh, just highlight that. So um, the chapter opens um, on the first day of the week. And when we see this, Mary is already coming to the tomb. Now, John doesn't give a discreet explanation for why Mary is coming to the tomb, but why do you suppose? Why, why was Mary... Go ahead, James. To mourn. Mary was going to the tomb to mourn. We do this. Why do we mourn? Because we long to be reunited with the person who's just been removed from our midst. When someone dies in our life, we go... There's a funeral, we visit their grave from time to time because we long for reunification. We long for a restoration of fellowship. And Mary here, we, as we were reading in Song 3, she was searching for the one who her soul loved. Now, of course, song, the Song of Solomon is not to be understood just as a love poem between Solomon and the Shunammite. The Song of Solomon is explicitly a love poem between Christ and the bride. And the overtly beautiful poetry in that uh, book can be used to understand this situation with Mary seeking after Jesus. She, she says to the disciples that they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And in the midst of this interaction, we see a glimpse into Mary's heart and her life. She comes on the first day of the week, and that's significant in the scriptures. And this, this in my mind, is indicating that the that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new creation. What Jesus did in his resurrection, as the Gospel of John makes plain through its use of, of symbolism, through its use of poetry, is stating that Jesus Christ's resurrection is the total undoing of everything that was put wrong in the fall of the first, first creation. And so Jesus' resurrection has accomplished a new creation. It's the beginning. It's the inauguration. It's the setting into place or the laying of a foundation of a new work that God is doing in the earth, namely the church. In the midst of this, John, uh, the, the, the apostle, in recording his gospel in verse 2, he doesn't refer to himself by his own name, but rather re-identifies himself around the love that Christ had for him. In this way, we see the resurrection being something that totally shapes and alters our worldview. In fact, it, it totally defines for John his entire identity. He's not even worthy to call himself John. He rather defines himself the disciple who the Lord loved. In verse 2, we see Mary. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. John here is, is stating that the love of Christ on my life is a more foundational identity than even the name that my father gave me. In the midst of this interaction, Mary, John, uh, Simon Peter, they visit the tomb, and after this, the disciples, they depart. Um, in John's gospel, we've, we've talked about this a few times in our church, the idea that the Bible is, is uh, replete with historical consistencies throughout it. And it's important to note in this chapter that Mary and the other disciples, 
who go and see that the tomb was empty on that first day of the week meet the Bible's righteous standard of attestation, or that is, confirming a fact. That is, the Bible says that every fact must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And so historically, it's extremely important that the Gospel of John records that it wasn't just Mary at the tomb who was testifying, but that Simon and John were also there. Now, to me, that's a beautiful element to say that this is a continuation of God's purposes with his people. What Christ has done in rising from the dead is none other than God's next step in his redemptive plan. In John uh, 20, verse 8 through 10, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, Then the the disciples went back to their homes. If you were here on our uh, Good Friday service, it was, I loved it. It was, um, it was very short. If you like short meetings, you you missed a good meeting. Uh, But one of the purposes of that Good Friday service was sort of like what we see in this chapter. The disciples in verse nine, it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Christ plainly tells them over and over in the gospel, the Son of Man must suffer and then later three days rise from the dead. Is it that the disciples were deaf? No, they clearly heard the Christ. What What is being presented here is that the people of God, those who heard Christ in their midst, in their lives, did not understand what he was saying. And so we see salvation as requiring a miracle. Even though they heard plainly, They didn't understand. And so we see the necessity of God coming and opening up our ears to hear and to believe. One of the elements of that Good Friday service that was so beautiful, I thought, in our our liturgy or in the experience of that night is that the events of God's redemption sometimes for the people of God just move along and we miss what's going on in the moment. And then at the end, the, the service was like 40 minutes, I think, 45 minutes. And then at the end, we just all were scattered. We, we just all left. Um, some of you, I'm sure, stood around and, and hung out. But, but the idea was that we were going through the same things that the disciples were going through on, on, on that Good Friday night. After the crucifixion, they're all, well, before Jesus' trial, they're all scattered. Some make it to the crucifixion, some make it around the crucifixion, and then they're all dispersed to their homes and scattered. And that's what happens again in this verse. So we see not only is salvation needing God to perform a miracle on us, but we also need God the Holy Spirit to cause us to come together and be gathered. At first, the disciples don't understand that Christ had risen, and this is consistent with the entire Bible. The people of God often miss what God is doing in the midst of them. And so at this point, uh, the disciples go back to the, their tombs, or the, sorry, their homes, but Mary stays around, and um, God demonstrates his patient and loving kindness in that, even though the disciples kind of dispersed, he still intentionally encounters Mary. Mary, as I said earlier, like Song 3, Mary is searching for the bridegroom. She's looking for the one that she loves. And in this place, even though the disciples scatter, she stays. This is a heart that's filled with devotion. This is a heart that longs to be with the Christ. 
Mary stays, and her love and devotion, her longing to see Jesus, actually is brought out even stronger because of what happens with these angels. Do, do you remember any times in the Old Covenant scriptures, the Old Testament, where angels show up? Abraham or, or the prophets? Uh, angels show up time and again in the Old Covenant. And when that happens, the man of God or the woman of God, whoever's in the midst, falls on their face with terror and dread because of the glory and severity of what's going on. But here, Mary doesn't do that. She sees the angels who are in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head, one at the other, and she doesn't get overwhelmed by their glorious appearance because her longing to see the Christ is greater than even her fear of the unknown. In the midst of this, Mary is then encountering the Lord Jesus and is unmoved. John 20, verse 12 through 13, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Do you see the poetic application to song three? They've, Where is the one who my soul loves? And then when what happens when she finds him, right? We're going to see that. Mary does not fall down in terror at the sight of these angels, but she is focused on finding the Lord. And in this way, we see her devotion being uh, exalted or, or presented by, by John. John twenty fourteen through 15, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She longed to be with Jesus. She longed to make a place for his rest. And this is a heart of worship. Just as the original creation saw Adam in the garden, so also Mary sees Christ as the gardener, inaugurating the new creation and pointing the way forward into the city of God. It is a biblical um, fact that there are very few gardens in the scriptures. There's one in creation, there's one in the garden of Gethsemane, there's one here, and then finally there's a garden at the end of the age in the city of God. Those are the only gardens in the scripture. And the poetry would suggest here that this is none other than the, the establishment of the new creation. Jesus being recognized by Mary as a gardener, he's one who's cultivating and bringing to life that which is dead all around him. And so we see again Christ's compassion for us, though Mary doesn't uh, see the, re the resurrected Christ as he is, he doesn't reject her, he doesn't turn away, but instead he goes after her. He calls her by her name. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. We've learned how to read the reverse negative. What was happening? She was clinging to Jesus. She ran and grabbed the Lord and was holding on to him. She was overjoyed by finding the one whom she loved, and she did not let him go. And in the midst of this, Jesus says, don't cling to me, as in, I, I know you wish to be near me, but there's something greater that I need to do. I have not yet ascended to the Father. We're going to see that in 40 days from now, um, actually probably 42, because I don't think we're going to have a Ascension Thursday meeting. We'll probably just celebrate it that, that Sunday. But 
Jesus is saying, I have something yet to do. The resurrection is not the final word in what I'm doing for you, but rather I will go to the Father. Now, at this point, the thing I want to emphasize is Jesus's wording here. I am going to ascend to the Father, my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What has happened here? What has happened through the resurrection? Jesus is saying that God has adopted you. Not only is Jesus the brother, he calls the disciples his brothers. Remember, at first Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you slaves or servants, but now I call you friends. What's happening now? Now Jesus is calling the disciples brothers. He then says, I'm going to ascend to the Father, my Father, and your Father, my God, and your God. What has happened is nothing other than the adoption as sons of those who Jesus' disciples uh, were composed of. He's, He's explicitly saying to Mary, send word to the disciples that everything has changed. He is now... Now, he has now inaugurated this adoption, which Paul baked, uh, bases his entire theology in the book of Romans on, that we, both the Jews and the Gentiles, have been adopted, not of our own doing, but of God's free will, of God's graciousness. We did not adopt ourselves. We did not choose to join God's family, but he came, sought us out, died our death, was raised to life, and after raising to life, declares to us, you are now adopted. This is the, the beginning of the gospel. God has come and brought you near. John again notes the force of the importance of the, these events taking place on the first day. After Mary uh, leaves, apparently she's faithful to what Jesus had told her to do. She goes and declares to the disciples. And then we, we uh, catch on to um, the disciples again. But I want to highlight this idea that the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. This is not just redemption from the fall. This is restoration, maturation, development. This is like the dough rising on the purpose and point of humanity. It's not for you just to live on the earth and follow God's laws and live in his uh, place and go throughout the world and establish dominion and being fruitful and multiplying. That is the purpose of humanity, but it's now to be done in relation to Christ, adopted as sons of God. And that is what Jesus is getting at. This is a microcosm of redemptive history that man does not seek after God, but God has come near to us. And John in his gospel uh, is making that clear. Jesus shows up among them on the evening, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, peace be with you. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen um, one of those new Marvel movies that have been coming out in the last 10 years. Uh, That's pretty cool, the idea of walking through a wall. Um, I just want to demonstrate that Jesus Christ in defeating death is not just defeating death. He is demonstrating that the life that he lives to God now up until the ascension is a life that is supernatural. He's now saying, I have gone for you, before you. I have, I have defeated death, and now anything is possible for those who believe. Jesus shows up in their midst while the doors are locked. Um, that's amazing. In the midst, of course, uh, of the disciples, Jesus is appearing, and the most amazing thing is not that he can now walk through walls or show up wherever he would like. 
the most amazing thing is what he says to them. He says to them, peace be with you. When Jesus sent out the 72 in Luke 10 to declare the kingdom was at hand, whenever they went, entered a house, they were explicitly told to say what? Peace be with you. Jesus, in this manner, in showing up in the midst of their house, declaring peace be with you, is explicitly communicating the gospel to even his own disciples. You see, we do not just believe that the disciples were specifically chosen by God. We also see by this that they themselves were preached the gospel by Jesus himself. Jesus comes into their house and declares peace to them. And we see Christ preaching the gospel not just to the whole world, but even his own disciples who then would take that gospel, not making it up, as some liberal historians or liberal Christians believe, but rather receiving the gospel originally from Christ himself. Jesus ends this masterful gospel indicating the purpose for the faithful investigation and recording of God's salvation. Many people are confused why the Bible was written. And John ends his masterpiece, one of the greatest works of literature ever wrought on the earth, with two explicitly clear phrases as we're going to um, look at and then close. John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When I said that the gospel was clear and explicit and easy to understand, it is. That's what this verse means. By rising from the dead, Christ has defeated death and opened up for us a way of salvation. This salvation is not an accomplishment of ourselves, but rather it was done by Christ. I was, uh, I'm, I'm occasionally uh, asked by people in our church what they think about the gospel, uh, what is my perspective on how people respond. It's consistent with the facts in the narrative. We did not resurrect Christ for us. We did not die our death in our place for us. He came to the world for us. He died on the cross for us. He resurrected from the dead. And after resurrecting from the dead, he comes and declares peace to us. This is the gospel that God has drawn those who are far away and brought them near by declaring peace to them through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you can understand that, if you, if you understand those, those words, you can believe the gospel. You can know that God is, to, is toward you and for you and desires that you would come to him. One, one of the things that I love about understanding a gospel that is as simple as that is it can be believed by just about anybody. I believe that God does desire for us who have been given stronger intellects to use them to his service, but I do believe that it can be very dangerous if you don't know how to explain the gospel to a six-year-old or a five-year-old or someone with autism of any, of any form. The gospel is this, that we sinned and rebelled against God through Adam and then multiplying those sins by our own rebellions and slanderings of God and, and idolatries and breaking of his commandments. And that in the midst of that, Christ came and he died on our death and he raised from death to life defeating death for us, so that we, as we believe the great Christian hope is, one day will be resurrected when he returns to live with him and, and his father 
the Spirit, and all of the church forevermore. While we were scattered, Christ has sought us out, and he has gathered us by his Spirit. Not only has he gathered us, but he himself has proclaimed to us the gospel, that God has reconciled us to himself, declaring peace to those who were far off. We're going to close now with a, a, a very brief time of prayer, and then we're going to take communion. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word, which is done, uh, which was written so that we may believe. Lord, we ask that you would convince us of the goodness of Jesus in his death and resurrection, that what we celebrate today, we would not just see it as an idea or something other people believe, but that we would apprehend with full faith, with deep assurance, knowing that you desire to speak peace to us. Lord, we ask that we would be forgiven of sins against you where we harbor wrong ideas or, or accuse you, God, of being a, a God who, who uh, is just judgmental and, and hates us. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to see what you have done as defining our entire life, that we, like, like John in his gospel, would not call ourselves or build our identities on who we are and what we do, but rather that our identity would be shaped by your love for us. Lord, we pray that we would be like Mary, that we would see your son as being ultimately desirable, that his fellowship and company would be greater than any other love or, or affection in our life, and that we, seeing Christ rising for us, would follow in the same way, that we would leave death and all forms of sin behind, that we would seek after you with full assurance of faith, being filled by your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.